With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Chelsea shot themselves in the foot last night in the race for the top four. They lost 1-0 to Arsenal after a comical Jorginho own goal. A few question marks as to who was truly at fault, but are there greater concerns with the general performance considering there are two huge cup finals for the Blues just around the corner? We'll look back at last night's Premier League action on today's show, as well as taking a look at this evening's offering with Act 1 comprising two old houses of the English game, Aston Villa and Everton, and Act 2 having a more Hollywood feel as the big names of Manchester United and Liverpool take to the stage at Old Trafford. But will there be more heckling from a disgruntled audience this time around? Of course, that game rearranged from the postponed match just 11 days ago. Plus, some news has dropped around the latest broadcast rights for the Premier League in the UK. How will this affect the top flight moving forward, considering all the discussion about football finance and failed Super Leagues lately? I'm Niall, this is Football Social Daily, the podcast with a new episode every single day, including the weekends, focusing on the English top flight. Hit subscribe now and that way you'll never miss a show. And joining me for today's endeavours, we have former professional footballer turned Axeman turned creative genius, John Paul Hughes. How are you doing, JP? Good mate, thanks for reading out the intro I wrote for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just read your CV, it's only three bullet points and it's that. that's it. Uh, we've also got Man City supporter, filmographer and Kylian Mbappe's best mate, Callum Tyler. Alright Callum. <laughs> that's just about accurate, hello. <laughs> uh, before we begin today's show lads, I actually just wanted to say this. I want to offer our deepest condolences here at Football Social Daily to the family, friends and teammates of nine-year-old Liverpool fan Jordan Banks, who sadly died after being struck by lightning at football training in Blackpool earlier this week. And Jordan was said to be a truly kind soul. He even ran 30 miles in 30 days for charity during lockdown. And it's been sad to hear the news that he passed away. So before we begin the show, just wanted to say rest in peace, Jordan, and condolences to all of his family and loved ones from us here at Football Social Daily. Now, the Premier League game on offer last night, there was only one, took place at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea nil, Arsenal won, and it was a Jorginho own goal that was the difference, JP. But you're someone who's played the game, a a professional standard. Who's at fault here? Who are you kicking seven bells out of at the full-time whistle? Are you pointing fingers at Jorginho or are you pointing fingers at the goalkeeper, Kepa Aritha Balaga, who seemed to come quite a long way out of the sticks to show for that pass? Yeah, well, it'd be fair. Um, it's quite a long time since it's been paid to play any football. And, <laughs> and, and, and back when I was, it, 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 you were always told, even as a kid, um, and uh, and even at professional level, that when the ball goes back to the goalkeeper, pass it wide of the sticks. You never roll it to the goalie in the middle of his goal. For fear, uh, he would miskick it, miscontrol it, roll it under his foot, bob over the top of him, go into the goal, and you've considered an absolutely ridiculous OG. Um, mm. But also... 
um, when I was playing football, goalkeepers weren't goalkeepers the way they are now. You know, when that ball was being rolled back to the goalkeeper, it was only for one reason: it was going to be launched the length of the pitch um, <laughs> as high as it could possibly be. And uh, people like our old pal Duncan Ferguson would be scrapping it out <laughs> yeah. with, with elbows, target man, <laughs> just smashing elbows into people's faces, and then the battle would commence the minute the ball hit the deck. So it's a slightly different setup. I, I, I'm still amazed how. <laughs> assured they are and confident they are at times when they pass the ball to goalkeepers in, in, in pressure situations and this wasn't a particularly high pressure situation it was it, it was something that they you know they made a real pig's ear of it so I do think that uh, Kepa took up an unusually wide position to receive the ball mm. and I think when you look at it and analyse it even there's, there's a little glance up and uh, and then as he puts his head back down again um, Kepa's moved again even wider he takes another couple of steps wide but full responsibility lies with Jorginho um, he knows uh, I mean th- th- look at his performance look at how, how quality a, a footballer this guy is he's had an absolute brain fart he hasn't lifted his head he hasn't completely computed uh, the situation in front of him and he's made an assumption about where the goal is going to be uh, and that is just absolutely criminal at any level of football never mind here so for me Kepa's in a bizarre position. Um, he does really well to get back and scramble it. Mm. Uh, but total fault with Jorginho. Um, and, and and you know, you always know what, what foot your, your goalie wants the ball passed to. You should know where he's going to be. That should be well drilled. Um, but he's he, he's switched off. And I think actually that switch off and that drop in concentration for a split second was was, was pretty um, endemic of, of Chelsea's performance the whole night. I think you're right and I think I agree that it's probably Jorginho's fault from a personal opinion and you'd think that you know someone as talented as Jorginho would be able to just even pick up his head and scan a couple of more times before he plays that pass he is under a bit of pressure but you see the best midfielders you know to ever play the game and I'm not just talking in the modern era I'm talking you can go back 30 40 even longer years and you'll see the best midfielders are always tilting their head. Their head is always on the swivel looking for what's around them. And um, I just feel that maybe that could definitely have been avoided. I do think that Kepa does have um, a few questions to answer. For me, Callum, it was the fact that Jorginho played the pass, realised Kepa wasn't in sticks, and he didn't even chase back until the goalkeeper eventually scrambled it away off the line. Then he thought, oh, I better put a shift in here to get back into the box that was the thing that frustrated me the most not even the dodgy back pass it was the fact that he kind of stood there and watched the ball trickle towards the goal line I think that that would have annoyed a few Chelsea fans yeah the the two defenders there I'm not sure who the other person is but um they both just kind of they're very stationary there um and it's not so I actually think that when the ball so Kepa does really well to, to claw it off the line but then the shot comes in from Emil Smith-Rowe after they're able to sort of pass it around the Chelsea back line. I think Kepa overcommits then after he's swept off the line by then going too far out the other way. All he needs to do is just stay on his kind of inside post there. I think he then makes life even more difficult for himself because he comes flying out the other side of the six-yard box and ultimately just leaves the goal empty again for Arsenal to pass in. I mean, it's 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 kind of a catalogue of errors from Jorginho's pass onwards from all of them, I think, are, are to blame. Um, but you've got to say, like, that's we talk about pressing a lot in football that's why a high press is so good because that's that's ultimately one arsenal of the game and it's because they were putting them under so much pressure you know there's three players there sort of around their 18 yard box not giving them a moment's peace so yeah i think you kind of you can force the the bad luck and you can force the mistakes with that press chelsea fans were upset with the general performance i think a few of them were suggesting as well on social media that they weren't too bothered about the scoreline just the general attitude and demeanor of the players was concerning considering there's two cut finals around the corner the thing that I was wondering is why Chelsea looks so toothless up front sometimes, JP. We know how good they are defensively. And again, it was an own goal and an individual error which cost Chelsea rather than their opposition breaking through them. But why is it, you think, that with such attacking talent that they do have in that side, that sometimes they just look like they struggle to score a goal? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. if you Do you two both find Kai Havertz probably the single most frustrating footballer in the Premier League? <laughs> There's something about him just really annoys me. Um, and I think it's how wasteful he is. And, and he's, that, he's, he's like that lad at five aside who is mm. mustard, but he just never passes the ball <laughs> at the right time. Aye. He always takes a shot when he should pass and vice versa. And that's one of the things we were always taught as, as, as kids. Um, I remember a, a really, really great... 
fullback that was at Dundee United, lots of Scottish caps, and at the time a guy called Morris Malpass. One of the pieces of mm. advice, he, 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 or one of the things he passed on that I always remember, the difference between good players and great players isn't ability, it's decision-making. And that is decision-making off the ball, it's decision-making on the ball. I, I suppose it's probably the elite level of any profession. Um, these tiny little micro-decisions that are made time and time and time again are, are, are can, can influence things massively and Havertz seems to make decision, bad decision time after time after time but it's not just him um, but you look at you talk about and I had a quick look this morning and Chelsea have, they've got 55 goals in the league this season so you know um, at least 10 goals fewer than, than Leicester, the, the place above them, considerably fewer than, than United and City, um, kind of same as West Ham and Liverpool. So, um, but what make what, what highlights it so much is how many chances they create, you know? Um, it's not like they only make two or three chances a game and they put one of them away. And I, I actually think City will really, you know, I, I think City will really bury them in the Champions League final because of their, their, their wastefulness. But why does it happen? Maybe we can put it down to you know. They, 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 I think Lampard was accused of at times not playing to the strengths of people like Timo Werner and what have you. It's quite clear Tuchel does that. He does play to their strengths. He understands where they are and he gets really good performances out of the team. Fantastic results. But I, I, I hate to bring out that old cliche about desire to score a goal that, that someone like Alan Shearer trots out and gets paid you know hundreds of thousands of pounds for in match of the day every single week to say the same thing about every striker he ever sees. It's about desire, it's about attitude. But that ball that was whipped across last night, you know the one um, that came across and, and, and uh, Havertz could have thrown himself at um, to, to, to equalise? That that that's a mentality thing. That's not ability. That is just, you know people talk whether you're not a number nine or you're not a real centre forward. Well, fundamental basics you're taught in football training the minute you start playing is whether you're midfielder or attackers. One of you goes front post, one of you goes back, and you risk life or limb to get across the front of the defender to get on the end of that ball. And they just didn't do it. But it's not even just this generation. A, a, a Chelsea strikers that, are, that, are, that, that <laughs> if you want to call them strikers, that really really struggle to score. I was having a wee think about this and. Shevchenko, Pizarro, Torres, Sturridge, Ba, Eto, Anelka, all these people really struggled to score goals at Chelsea when they scored goals freely everywhere else they went in their career. It is baffling. Mm. Actually, I, I would I would say that Nicholas Anelka was the anomaly. I actually thought he was quite good at Chelsea considering mm. um, you know, he was a Bolton player before that and stuff like that. But I see what you're saying. It does seem like they keep <laughs> signing strikers. I mean, Crespo, you could put Crespo into that category. They seem to do, they do seem to sign yeah. top strikers like Morata is another one in recent times. And it just doesn't really work for them. I just, I, I absolutely, I love, I love the idea that a Nicholas Anelka <laughs> is labelled as a Bolton player. That's, <laughs> that's the epitaph for his career. To just keep that, that is perfect. Real Madrid, Arsenal, Chelsea. <laughs> Bolton, love it. Bolton. <laughs> um, over the last 25 league games, considering that result last night, Callum, Chelsea and Arsenal have now taken the same amount of points. For me, that's almost impossible to compute. Does that show how good a job Thomas Tuchel has done since he's come in? I know they lost last night. Or does it highlight just how poor Frank Lampard was at the end with the same squad? Or are we being a little bit too easy on Arsenal? Does that show how inconsistent they've been this season as well it's funny the filter that we look at these things through like the story we're telling about Arsenal this season is very different to the story that we're telling about Chelsea um, yeah. but they've both you know as you say won exactly the same amount of points I think the the Chelsea man- managerial thing is is interesting for me because like Lampard had pr- the same players he just didn't have the same sort of relationship with the players it this really does show that actually the manager does make a huge amount of difference and there's no doubt that they have improved massively since since Tuchel came in. I think when I was watching the post-match interview that Tuchel did, he's got this kind of aura of control that, that Lampard just never had and he's, this kind of, he's got this kind of terrifyingly focused kind of attention to detail on him as well. It's all, it's all very kind of stereotypically German, but he's kind of, um, he's such an impressive guy and, you, you know, if you're getting that, just from a post-match interview, I think the difference in the in the dressing room and on the training ground must be huge, and I think it just does show the 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 difference a manager can have. And, and I think Chelsea, he, he's had to obviously come in halfway through this season, but I, I really do think that whether they win whether they win the Champions League and the Cup or not this season, I think they'll be challenging next season. And I think it it does show that you know I, everyone feels sorry for Lampard. We all like Frank Lampard. Yeah, um, he's one of my favourite ever Premier League players. 
he, he was mine as well and, and I was actually quite pleased that we got him for a season at, at City as well I, I, always, I always like him even though I do kind of slag him off as being like the ultimate Tory dad with all these kind of issues <laughs> in his head um, but I, I just think that it was probably too soon for him um, but T- Tuchel just seems like this terrifying like winning machine when you hear him talk and that's, that's clearly it's clearly working I think there's something interesting in that that you, you say there as well because um, and the difference between between Lampard and Tuchel that you, you talk about because I thought it was really interesting Tuchel's post-match interview last night I quite enjoyed how how clearly agitated he was um, yeah and I think, oh, there's a wee bit of spice in there. It's, it's kind of nice to see. I quite look, I, I kind of look forward to a, a few explosive interviews with him because you could tell he was just really, really choking to let go, but he was pulling it mm. back. And I thought, mm, I, I like that about him, you know, because what it's... But it's sh- interesting in that, because he blamed himself. So he said, I, exactly. I take full responsibility. It was my lineup. He said, he even said something interesting, which was like, I could kind of tell something like this was going to happen, just the way the guys were in training. Aye. I could tell something like this was going to happen. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. If that was Lampard, he'd have immediately blamed the players. Exactly. He would have talked about their work ethic and their mentality, yeah. and he would have gone full in on, on the players with, with two feet. And he would have looked, he would have looked like, annoyed and pissed off whereas I think Tuchel was pissed off but he was able to rein it in and kind of direct it towards himself yeah he had that thing you know Tuchel had that had that seething anger that (laughs) you're a wee guy and you're misbehaving in a supermarket or something that your mum just used to look at you you know what I mean you're like oh man I'm so going to cop it later on whereas uh, Lampard had that vibe of the dad that would just start spanking your ass in the supermarket in front of everybody you know what I mean (laughs) and actually little insight into JP's upbringing (laughs) but actually you know it's the it's the silent glare and that that under you know the, the 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 boiling anger underneath that actually terrifies you more about what's going to come. It's the anticipation. You'd you'd, you'd much rather get the explosive smack in the backside out the way early doors. Um, and I think that I think that was telling about the experience of those managers and their approach to it and how to fine tune that. And bizarrely, I mean, it, there's no two ways about it. it, it, it it was the players' fault. It was the Tuchel's fault? You know what I mean? Because they, they, mm. they had more than enough opportunities to, to win that game, and the cost. You know, I, I wouldn't. Say, it was an absolutely. I mean, I thought Arsenal were pretty turgid, man. It was a really difficult game to watch at times, um, and they're a club who's kind of left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth all season. And and um, the, the way they're finishing this season, I think, kind of sums the whole thing up. But it was, uh, yeah, just uh, there's this weird thing. And I, I get it with, with the band, and I used to get it when I played football as well, is that before we had a... I used to quite like having a bad rehearsal or a bad training session or a bad match before a big one. Because I used to think that, you know, it, it has proven over the years that if we did that at the gig or at the next match that was coming up, we were a hundred times better because you would leave kind of pissed off, you'd be in a bit of a bad mood with yourself, but all of a sudden your focus would sharpen right up because you realise, oh, here... We are not what we are. Sometimes, if you're if you're doing, you know, you're doing okay, you're playing quite well, you're through the motions, you're getting the victories, um, then you get a little bit too confident and comfortable within yourself. It might, it might. I'm not saying it will, but it might just all go well for Chelsea to have um, a couple of uh, sticky moments before mm. the uh, Champions League final. I tell you what scares me more though is the chinos and boat shoes combination inevitable uh, from someone of Frank Lampard's ilk I think from a fashion perspective um, you're right Callum Tuchel said he took full responsibility for the loss but only Liverpool have made more direct errors leading to goals this season than Chelsea so they're going to need to cut that out before their two cup finals just talking about um, so, sorry just talking on, on manager styling by the way just wanted to comment um, I, I picked up this last night if any saw match of the day I was watching the Fulham highlights full credit to Scott Parker for allowing Alan Partridge to stay his wardrobe for all season that has been absolutely what commitment to that knitwear truly remarkable <laughs> he loves that padded suit jacket doesn't he He's, he keeps rolling that one out um, but yeah two cup finals around the corner Chelsea keep making individual errors and I suppose that's kind of linking into what JP said they're kind of getting it out of their system I suppose before the big ones from an Arsenal perspective is it just typical of Arsenal and their mentality that as soon as there's no pressure this season, they're out of the Europa League, which is pretty much all they were fighting for. They go and perform really well against an already relegated side in West Brom, it must be said. But then they go and get a result against Chelsea as well. It just feels like it's you know, symbolic of Arsenal's season that when nothing really matters is when they start to play a little bit better. Yeah, this is this is textbook, <laughs> this is textbook Arsenal, isn't it? We see this almost every year from them. I thought um, Arteta's 
press conference after the game was pretty interesting as well. He kind of, he directed all of his ire at, at the press and to some quotes that, I don't even know what the quotes were, that he said were, were taken out of context and somebody was, was questioning whether he thought the team was always given it 120% or whatever ridiculous figure they were using this week. Um, but he looked, he looked uh, kind of angry and fired up and spiky, um, but in a slightly more kind of, well, less controlled way than, than Tuchel. So I don't know what's going on behind the scenes there. I think it's going to go, it's going to go one of two ways. It's either going to implode um, or they'll come back next season and, and he'll have kind of created a bit of a siege mentality, which is what I think he was going for last night. Um, but it was just, I don't know if anyone saw it, it was just a very strange, strange, spiky interview from, from Arteta. Mm, definitely. I, I just wonder what happens in the summer for Arsenal. I think that's going to be really telling next season and beyond, particularly with Mikel Arteta coming under a little bit of heat from some of the Arsenal supporters. Time to take a break here on Football Social Daily, but the Premier League broadcast rights for UK television have been uh, basically signed, sealed and delivered. We'll talk about that next here on the podcast. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. I'm Niall, JP and Callum with me. Time to talk some slightly more administrative things when it comes to the Premier League. And the broadcast rights for the UK have basically been agreed. The league have secured an approval in principle for renewals with their current UK broadcast partners, which are, of course, Sky Sports, BT Sport, Amazon Prime Video and the BBC. And effectively, it's for the same money over the next three years. What normally happens is every three years, the Premier League will put the rights to screen Premier League games on UK TV out to tender. And for anyone who isn't sure about what that means, it basically means it's a bidding process. It kind of works like that. So everyone puts a bid in and then it's divvied out depending on basically who stumps up the most cash. However, there won't be a tender process this time around. We're at the end of the three-year cycle and the new three-year cycle begins next season, but there hasn't been a tender process. The government have basically just said, we're going to keep things the same, the Premier League are happy with it, and effectively it's going to be for the same money over the next three years, JP. So there is no increase in broadcast revenue from a UK perspective for Premier League clubs over the next three years. With all the European Super League chat and stuff like that, how do you think those big six clubs feel about that? Because there were complaints that effectively there wasn't enough money in the pot. Yeah, they're probably um, they'll be publicly pleased and privately furious. <laughs> um, but you know, should the money have been increased? I don't think so. Um, there is there any better? Is the product any better? Is it any different? Have we seen? You know, has there been any improvement within it? No, um, and. I understand the desire to shortcut process in some ways, um, but I mean, the top six themselves, how are they going to feel about it? I wish I I had the insight that these billionaires, um, because you or I, as, as, as the ordinary working person, doesn't think the way these maniacs do. Um, you don't get to be a billionaire by having the same rationale, logic and perspective on things that people that you or I do. So there's no two ways about it. They, uh, they, they, they messed up badly with the European Super League. They got that completely wrong. And I think privately they'll be pretty annoyed and pretty angry that they have almost been publicly shamed into accepting the same terms in the same deal because I don't had the European Super League not half debacle not happened and it not had such a, a massive backlash on these clubs and their owners then uh, I think that deal would probably have been pushed up quite a bit further yeah the deal isn't going out to tender due to what's called an exclusion order which was brought about by compelling evidence effectively the Premier League said with coronavirus and everything else that's going on, we don't think it's right for our rights to go out to a bidding process. So we're just going to keep it the same for the next three years. And the government said yes. And the only reason the government said yes, Callum, was the Premier League also offered to pledge an extra £100 million into grassroots football over the next four years, which involves money trickling down to national league clubs, so non-league teams basically across the country, women's and girls' teams, as well as some struggling outfits in Leagues 1 and two so I mean there are benefits 
to this, but you'd think that with the rights basically increasing in value every year, for it to stay at a flat rate, particularly now with everything that's going on, there might be a few concerns from those further up the pyramid like JP outlines. Yeah, I think um, even before coronavirus, we were potentially reaching the point of like complete saturation for football and, and it, it was growing to the extent it was looking like a bubble and there was always the question at what point does it does it stop growing or, or even burst i think this deal given coronavirus kind of works for everybody if you look at tv deals throughout europe um they're all falling so the, the bundesliga deal that they signed last summer in the middle of the pandemic is worth five percent less than the deal they had before and uh, syria are now about 200 million euros less a season that they're getting um, so that's almost i think that was like 15 percent or 20 percent less than they were getting in their new deal so you would have to say, you know, had you put it out onto the free market and and started a bidding war, who who was there? Who was going to buy it? Um, who which broadcasters that don't currently show the Premier League were, were even queuing up for that European Super League? They didn't have one, so the desire probably wasn't out there. So you know, what else were the clubs going to get? It kind of works for them in in that regard, and they'll be hoping that once everything gets back to normal, it, the the price will shoot back up again. It works for the broadcasters because they get to pay exactly what they were paying before. Audi TV audiences, by the you know virtue of nobody being able to be in the ground, are higher than they ever have been. So it's be better value for them, and they get their money laid down for the next three years. So that's great for them. And I think the the big winner here apart from the sort of the lower league clubs and women's football, as you say, is the government. This is a this is a kind of um, very populist gov government who in the last few weeks with the European Super League have realised the PR power of football. Um, and this is a very easy win that doesn't actually cost the government any money, but is something I bet we're going to hear a lot about that £100 million that they secured for grassroots football um, in, in the coming weeks. This is a very easy thing for them to do. And, you know, it, it is a good thing for them to do, but let's not pretend that they were doing it altruistically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the support's the rest of the pyramid is why this has been decided that's what the government say and i think you're right callum i think we will we'll hear that figure wheeled out in speeches and stuff like that i thought it was interesting you touched upon the fact that more people are watching football at home because they can't get into stadiums and stuff like that but i suppose jp on the flip side of the coin you might even say that because of the financial struggles that some have faced due to redundancy and unemployment and things like that during the last 18 months of this pandemic people have probably been cancelling subscriptions with sky and bt sport and amazon and the like because you know it's an extra expense that some people have had to kind of cut out of their lives so i suppose it's almost balanced itself out i guess and that might be another reason why the deal stayed the same it has i think they have to read the room a little better at times um, in terms of the mood of the general public I think Callum makes a superb point about the <laughs> the populist government um, who are going to be wheeling this out at every opportunity and we hear that big number and, and, and again I, I just keep bringing this back to ordinary people like you and I and anybody listening that you know, £100 million sounds like and just this fantastical sum of money that, oh my God, the amount of things you could do with that. But then when it's spread over four years and then you see that it goes out across all these national league clubs and women's clubs and EFL 1 and 2 and grassroots, there are a thousand or so different clubs that that's spread between. Then, on top of that, there are all the... Uh, the, the, the causes that that money goes to, including things like, you know, kind of research into, into head injuries in football and all these other... That, actually, it's, that £100 million is a lovely big round sum uh, for, a, for a headline, but it's spread pretty damn thin once you once you get down to it across four years. I know that sounds mental, that £100 million spread, but, but that's the size and, and, and scale of this thing. And fair play, it's happening, and, and we know it needs to happen and why it happens. But you're right, um, I think football it, it, it has been a, a beacon of light for us when we've been stuck in our homes, unable to go anywhere and do anything. Um, but I, I, I do feel that the, the, the desire and the, the appetite for as much live football has waned a wee bit. And I myself have um, actually cancelled a couple of uh, subscriptions that I previously had for, for, for sports channels um, during that period of time because there was just no need. You know, things like Premier Sport and all that, um, where you get La Liga and you get the Scottish Cup ties and all these kind of things as well. So it's uh, a, a lot of tough decisions. But even at that, I have to say, you know, we always say this and it, it feels like the end of a long, long, tired season. But I... 
as you know, Callum and I both work in advertising, and I was working in some uh, new season campaigns for uh, some big clubs over the last couple of weeks, and uh, and I have to say, <laughs> even as I started doing that, and I was kind of seeing little little teasers of, of kits that are coming out from Adidas <laughs> and all these other people as well, I was absolutely buzzing for next season already. <laughs> so I think I, I think we we've got very short memories, you know. Uh, JP makes a good point to bring advertising into that. This the market for TV rights with sports doesn't exist in isolation. It's very much connected to what the advertising market is doing, and the TV companies are probably the biggest winner, given what I've just read, which is that they're expecting the advertising market's obviously been depressed because of coronavirus. You know, companies don't have the budgets to spend, but that's expected to come roaring back, kind of from now to the end of the year. So if they can, you know, lock that in at the same price and then sell those spots for even more, they'll 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 be the ultimate winners. But it's very much mm. contingent on that happening. Yeah, and, and you'd like to think in three years the economy would be in a stronger position um, than it is currently, and it's almost a given that that's going to be the case, barring the pandemic rolling on for another few years, which of course nobody wants. And of course, it is overseas broadcast rights as well, which contribute massively to the funds that Premier League clubs are able to scoop up at the start of every season. It's not just UK broadcast rights, so this is just from a UK perspective i just wonder whether the only reason jp's buzzing for next season is because celtic have been <laughs> this year i think that's partly to do with it <laughs> oh man no, i mean kick a man when he's down listen i'm not here to have celtic kicked i'm here to kick the premier league okay so that's <laughs> it's all right we'll go from one european cup winner in celtic to another hey. after this break aston villa take on everton <laughs> Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Two Premier League games on offer tonight. Villa against Everton at Villa Park is the early kickoff. Two of the most established top flight sides of all time. Two of the most historical top flight teams in England. Everton, I think, have never been relegated. Villa have, but they've certainly, over the years, been two stalwarts of the Premier League and the English top flight before that. I mean, Everton, for them, it's been a matter of consistency, Callum. Carlo Ancelotti has banged on about it pretty much since Christmas, that we're not consistent enough. That's why we're not in the Champions League. However, disappointing defeat for them last time out. And if they lose to Villa, they're in danger of slipping out of the Europa League picture, which would be a disaster for them, especially considering Arsenal won last night against Chelsea. They want to secure at least Europa League football next season. Yeah, strange, strange season for Everton. I think everyone was excited when Ancelotti came in. Um, there were some really interesting players. Your James Rodriguez's of the world came in, um, and they they were playing sort of quite nice football. That you know, remember how many goals Calvert Lewin and and the like were scoring at the start of the season, and then it's kind of it's kind of just tailed off. And I think I, I do think all the ingredients are there, and if they can just find find that little bit of consistency, which has to be kind of probably mental at, the, at this point in the season, then then they they should be you know not top six necessarily, but at least kind of bothering the top six. Um, they'll probably finish between seventh and ninth, which is the sort of the Everton position. Um, but I think, you know, they've got to be looking to next season. It's a funny one. I, I was going to ask JP actually about this. Where, like what are the ingredients that make consistency possible? Like where does that, where does that come from? It, you know, it's got to be in the players' minds, surely. It does. Um, and it's about approach and setup, and I, I know I talk about this quite a lot, but it, it, it's the tiny little habits that you have. It's that the, there is no grand sweeping plan for bringing consistency, but what you do is you try and formulate day to day and in match lots of tiny little, um, you know, if you want to call them little atomic habits that go to build up a much much bigger picture, and 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 the more that you're able to. Um, build in these good habits and these little micro habits into all the things that you do throughout the course of the week, throughout the course of the day, and then throughout the course of a match, they start to, what a, a habit is, a, a, is an unconscious action, um, it delivers, you know, a, 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 a desired outcome for you, it's like a shortcut to thinking, almost, you know, um, and the more of them that you can implement day to day, in every single element of what you do, the more likely you are to be consistent in how you deliver that. And there's a there's an interesting quote um, from, from that, that I always loved to uh, years and years ago from Alex Ferguson when he said that um, those who achieve the most aren't those of the greatest ability; they are those who set and uphold the highest standards. And that's what it's about. It's about what is the what is the standard and the level that you set yourself in every single minute of every day? Who do you compare yourself to? What is the barometer that you use to gauge how well you're doing? And when all those little things come into place, and obviously it really, really helps if you've got you know, a settled manager, a settled start in the living, you know who your best team are, you know what, what you're uh, 
what your best formation is, and then you go about that. That's where consistency really comes from, and, and, and Everton have struggled with that a, a bit. Um, as you say, everybody was super excited with Ancelotti, but yet when you look at you know the overall season, it looks like a fairly typical Everton season as it's going to be. So a, a really tricky one to answer, and and, and, and quite a, you know a bit of a, a head scratcher because at times when you've seen I've seen Everton at times this season they've been sensational, uh, and then at other times really you know unbelievably ordinary. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's going to be a source of frustration for Everton fans if they can't sort that out next season when fans are allowed back into Goodison Park because I know what Goodison Park's like when the atmosphere does start to turn up a few notches. They can not get on the backs of the players, but they certainly make their feelings known. They're not a fan base to kind of sit there and let the game passively sort of drift them by. They are very keen to let the players know exactly what they want from them and what they demand from them. And I think there are a few new faces in that Everton side which perhaps haven't experienced uh, the fanship in English football. And I do think that the way that we support our football clubs in this, in this country is different to anywhere else in Europe. And I'm not saying that that's better or a, or a more effective way of supporting. I do think it is it is slightly different. And I do think that with way the way Everton were poor last season, I feel like they probably would be quite happy with Ancelotti coming in, some good players coming in, and they've done better this year. But I do think that if they're not in the European picture solidly next season, that might cause a few concerns. For Aston Villa, we say this every time we talk about them now, JP, because pretty much their their season is going to peter out because they, they're not really fighting for Europe and they're nowhere near the bottom of the table. Obviously, relegation has been already decided. For them, I guess they can just put their feet up and be happy with the fact that they've survived comfortably this year after a dicey season last time out. I think so. And the fact that, you know, as we've got to the the run-in of the season, they've lost their main, you know, their main man, the talisman, their icon, um, one mm. of the most talented yet worst-dressed footballers in the Premier League. Um, I mean, but what he is looked like on? a member of East 17 the other day, didn't he, with what, that big white coat? What's going on, man? Did you see like, that Nike, that full Nike onesie thing he had done like, a, a few weeks ago as well, man? <laughs> It's like he's, uh, I don't know, man, absolutely bonkers. I don't know what's running through his head, but he definitely fancies himself as a bit of, uh, I don't know, at times you look at Grealish and you think he'd be better off suited on Love Island, and then you see him on the uh, and then you see him on the pitch and, and the lad is just absolutely sensational. Um, so it, it's, if I was a Villa supporter, I'd be very satisfied with how this season has gone so far. Yeah. Kind of petering out towards the end, but that's what happens, you know. If they can, I think they've got a really, really tough job. And if they hold on to Grealish, um, that's going to be very, very difficult. But if they do that, then I think next season's the season that you look to kick on a little bit. If, if, if you are, if you're Aston Villa, but I'd be very, very happy with how this season's gone if I was a Villa supporter. I think Jack Grealish might leave Aston Villa in the summer. I think he's off to Callum's club, Manchester City. So. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Oh, nice. I'm absolutely nice. convinced of it, honestly. I thought a few weeks ago that Villa would play a key role in the top four race. Uh, and looking at their final four fixtures, Everton tonight, then Crystal Palace away, Tottenham away, and Chelsea at home on the final day. And things still might yet be decided by that final day of the season. So I do think Aston Villa still might have a little part to play, particularly that final day against Chelsea, with uh, perhaps eyes on other events for the Blues and Thomas Tuchel. It'd be interesting to see what happens there. That's the early kickoff at Villa Park. Villa against Everton, 6pm start. The evening kickoff, or the later kickoff, I should say, Manchester United against Liverpool at Old Trafford. This one rearranged from that postponed Sunday fixture just 11 days ago. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the United boss, made 10 changes against Leicester, Callum, so you'd think he'd do similar here, albeit switching it back to a full-strength side because it was certainly a weakened team he fielded against the Foxes. Yeah, and there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uproar about that um, from some people about the, the changes that he made. I did think it was a bit strange. Well, it's um, only got three games in five days. I mean, what do you want him to do? <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm glad he did. Obviously, um, yeah, I, I think I think for Oli, beating Liverpool will will mean an awful lot uh, to him. He always talks about that. Um, condemning them to Europa League will be some kind of symbolic victory for United. Um, I have to admit, I'm getting a little bit. Uh, I'm finding it hard to get up for this game because it's so late in the season and it kind of doesn't really mean too much um, in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, I think um, I would expect full strength Man United team um, or near to full strength. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know what else to say about this game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously this game isn't as 
critical as it was 11 days ago, which is just to show how quickly things can change in football. But beating Liverpool can condemn them to the Europa League. It was always going to be a tricky week for Solskjaer, JP, because not only do you have to think about the wellness of your players when you've got so many games in such a short time frame, but also they know that you know, by beating Aston Villa, they could have secured top four, which is what they did. They managed to get the result. They knew that if they lost to Leicester, they'd hand City the title. However, if things had transpired that if they lost to Liverpool tonight, they would have lost to their biggest rivals and handed the title to City. I mean, it's almost a bit of a lose-lose. So I can see why Solskjaer was absolutely furious when it was announced that this schedule was going to happen. Yeah, it's been crazy, hasn't it? But it, 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 it wouldn't really be Man United without a bit of a Hollywood drama around it, wouldn't it? A bit of melodrama <laughs> um, towards the end of the season. But let me ask you something. I know you do a lot of work with, with, with Man U TV and all the rest of it and, and commentating games, but do you do you think uh, any of the United supporters... Um, shall we say, regret uh, their actions that saw a game postponed and piled a wee bit more pressure on here, especially when they've got such a big match coming up in that, in that cup final soon? I don't think so. No? I don't think so. I think that there is a section of United supporters that probably would suggest to play a similar team against Leicester as to what they did against Liverpool because, mm-hmm. you know, now the focus is simply on that Europa League final. United are guaranteed top four. Um, they're going to finish above Liverpool. The title's already been decided. Um, I'm not sure if Leicester can catch them, but it seems pretty certain that they're going to finish in second place. Yep. So I suppose it's just a case of, you know, making sure that you've got your players fit for the Europa League final. However, there are others that say, listen, this is Liverpool tonight and we want to beat them more than anything else. Because if United beat Liverpool, that condemns Liverpool pretty much to Europa League football next season. Which is why we've seen a section of Liverpool fans, Callum, like you mentioned, there's been a bit of uproar about the the 10 changes on Tuesday. There's been a section of Liverpool fans complaining that there's some sort of conspiracy against them. And United made 10 changes against Leicester because they didn't want Liverpool to get into the Champions League. It doesn't run as deep as that, does it? This is just uh, football in the post-truth era. Uh, in, this, in this dissertation, I will not. It's, uh, yeah, f- football fans crying conspiracy about their rivals has been a big theme of this season. And uh, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely not that deep, lads. Uh, well, if they want a conspiracy... Well, I mean, it must be if, if, uh, if Liverpool, you know, these conspiracies must run pretty deep and pretty far because I was reading a couple of things earlier and again, maybe somebody might correct us on this, but Klopp has never won at Old Trafford. And... Apparently he has the record, or his record against Man United is worse than it is against any other team in the Premier League. And Man United have lost just one um, of the last 15 home matches against Liverpool. 10 wins and 4 draws. So uh, I, I don't, if, 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 uh, if Liverpool uh, get uh, pumped off United tonight, I don't think there's much of a conspiracy about it. <laughs> That's a, it's a good point. And obviously Manchester United um, at home have been slightly weaker than they have been away. I think they're unbeaten all season away from home. Uh, but at Old Trafford, that's where there have been a, a few cracks at times, let's just say. In terms of Liverpool and there being a conspiracy against them, this was mentioned on yesterday's Football Social Daily. They've just not been good enough, JP. There's no two ways about it. And I know they've had their injuries, Virgil van Dijk and Gomez, and you know they've had big players injured at terrible times of the season. Um, but you've also got players like Sadio Mane who came out yesterday and said it's been his worst ever season. And, you know, it's been notable that his confidence is absolutely on the floor. It's been clear as day for everyone to see all season. So, you know, you can talk about injuries and burnout and fatigue and stuff like that. But when you've got players coming out saying they've had a terrible campaign, that doesn't help as well. They just simply haven't been good enough, have they? They haven't been good enough. That's that's all it comes down to. I mean, Salah himself, even even though he's still right up there in the goal scoring charts, has looked a shadow of the player he was before. Manny don't even recognise him this season. Um, I mean, every time he touched the ball last season, you thought he, 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 he either scored a goal, made a goal, or, or caused real damage to the opposition. He was in fire. He looked like you know. There was a point last season where he looked like the most dangerous striker in Europe, and and arguably you know their front three was the the, the most uh, the most dangerous at that time as well. So that happens. Uh, but what I like about what Manny's doing here is he's taking accountability and responsibility for that, and he's not afraid to say it publicly because by acknowledging that publicly, what you do is you put it out there, and then you actually intrinsically self motivate yourself to do something about it. All this garbage about. Uh, conspiracy theories and you know people looking to throw games so that it can you know 
it, it might condemn Liverpool here, there or anywhere. I tell you what, man, it takes some amount of arrogance, self-importance and delusional thinking to think that, peop that, 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 that people are going around somehow conspiring against Liverpool Football Club. Yeah. Uh, have you ever heard such nonsense? No. Who cares? If you're not a fan of Liverpool or the team they're playing, who cares what's going on? And, and, you're worried about your club, and you know? All this as well about Manchester United making 10 changes and they should be docked points for it because it <laughs> skews the top four race. He's got three games in five days. He had a game Tuesday and a game today. I mean, what, what else is he meant to do? And you've got some people not worrying about their own clubs, like you say, JP, their own clubs that have already been successful this season, and yet they're still complaining that Manchester United should be docked points. Now, listen, I thought that everyone involved in the Super League should probably be docked points as a punishment for their actions, and I still stand by that because I think that's the right way to go about it. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, at least not this season, but certainly... I wouldn't suggest docking points or making 10 changes in a Premier League game. I mean, it's, it's just an absolute it's, it's, nonsense, it's, it's, it? it's Solskjaer and any other manager out there in the world in any game to play any team they choose. That is entirely their uh, responsibility and they have a duty to prioritise what tournaments, uh, what matches... Uh, they want to prioritise say against whatever that club laid out as their mm. objectives at the start of the season yeah. it's nobody else's business what, what team he picks if that's mm. what he wants to do I mean he's, 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 if they were to go out there let's say they, they, they pick uh, they, they choose a weakened team tonight right an, an inverted commas weakened by the way um, because uh, you know so, well, <laughs> If you some of the changes, I laugh at some of the changes these Premier League teams make, and people make out as if it's supposed to somehow have influenced and 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 lessen the team. You know what I mean? Fifty million pound signings with yeah. forty international caps and all that. <laughs> like David um, De Gea, class I, goalkeeper. Van der Beek costs forty million. I know. <laughs> um, Mason Greenwood and all that. You know what I mean? Like, like probably one of the hottest young talents, and 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 I really hope he goes to the Euros with England this summer as well. He's absolutely in fire right now. That wee guy. Mm. But look at the. Uh, but if you were to take that and and and. Uh, what, what 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 how do you class someone as a or a player or a team as weakening in inverted commas because yeah. um is, is it tactical decisions it's just absolute garbage it's nonsense it's people that, that are looking for excuses and deflecting away from their own inadequacies which bringing it back Solskjaer can do whatever he likes and I back him on that 100% but also brings back to my point about Manny as well fair yeah. play to him and well done I completely respect that guy for standing up and saying that just on the Manny thing, uh, I've kind of been lucky enough to, to do a bit of work around him with his, you know, we work with his, his boot suppliers and stuff. And he's, this is kind of very much in character for him and very much out of character for almost every every other footballer. Uh, he's a very humble guy. He he's thinks completely differently to, to other players. Um, there was a kind of famous picture of him walking into a game with a with an iPhone that had a cracked screen and, and he was asked about it. And he just went, oh, I just never thought, don't need to replace it. It still works. Do you know what I mean? He has a very... Right very different sort of mindset and, and I think this was this was so humble this was so modest and this was such a refreshing interview I do wonder though what the what the other players in the dressing room would make of a player kind of admitting their flaws in public like that but I think I think like JP said at the beginning it it, it takes it away from being the weapon that other people can use against you mm -hmm. if, if you recognize it yourself and, and say you're going to do something about it but yeah just so impressed with him but that's that's pretty typical of, of Sadio um, yeah. and I'm sure he'll he'll come back better for it it's a great point and I suppose it almost stems from his background of growing up in Africa where you know mm. players are lucky to have a pair of boots to play football with let alone you know mm -hmm. um, yeah, have absolutely. the riches that comes with being a professional footballer um, on the Manchester United thing there as well it's the first time in 11 years that they've changed 10 players for a Premier League game so it's not like they do it every week um, and it's their busiest running in the Premier League for 30 years so you know Liverpool know all about taking 30 years to do something don't they? <laughs> um, you couldn't help yourself there could you <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't it was too good it's too good a chance to, to pass up um, there were a few suggestions on social media though Callum that Manchester United fans are to blame for the fact they've had to make 10 changes and Manchester United have skewed it in their favour because it was their supporters that broke into Old Trafford when protesting against their ownership 11 days ago when the game against Liverpool got called off on that Sunday there is the potential for more protests tonight. Would that surprise you? Do you think we're going to see that? Does it feel like from the vibes on social media that we're going to see another protest this evening? Because I think 
a large contingent of those Manchester United protesters outside Old Trafford 11 days ago were keen to get the game cooled off because that sends quite a significant statement, not just to the owners, but also to people around the world that this is the biggest match in terms of television viewership in the Premier League each and every season. Is there a potential for that to happen again tonight? Do you think there'll be more people that, do you think there will be people that are looking to do the same thing once more? I think the appetite was definitely there, was it, 11 days ago? Um, And there was a lot of United fans and the sort of ringleaders of that protest talking about how they had to keep the momentum going, how they were just going to keep trying to postpone games. I think that's probably not realistic in terms of a few reasons. I think it's a lot harder to get people to invade a football stadium on a weeknight because um, they've not, you know, been on the cans all morning and had the day off. So I do think that there was an element of that. Um, so I, I think maybe there'll be there'll be fewer people there. They'll also expect the, the club will be much better prepared for it this time. There'll be way more security and police there. Um, and I also, you know, 11 days is a long time in football. And I, and I wonder if, you know, I'm sure there's there's a lot of anger still there. But, you know, what's what's another protest tonight going to change? They would probably say, if we can keep the momentum going and do this every home game until the end of the season, maybe that would change something. Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't expect it to be quite quite as busy and quite as angry as as last week. But, um, you know, there there is there is still the will there from a, from a contingent of them. So I, maybe there'll be something outside the ground. It's hard to tell. I'm not really on Man United forums um, very much. But uh, yeah, I think I think the the conditions for it are very different tonight than they were that weekend 11 days ago. I think you're right. I think that it's funny how much has changed in 11 days. We've already seen things wrapped up like the title and Manchester United are qualified for Champions League football next season. So it makes this game slightly less important, albeit still important because they're but two massive rivals. In they're also in a football. European final as well now. So you yeah. do, as a United fan, are you now thinking, oh, let's, let's maybe let, get that one out of the way, win that trophy, not disrupt the players too much in their preparations for that. It's, it's, they now have something to play for. Indeed. They could win at the end of the season, so maybe, maybe that comes into it. Yeah, of course. United against Liverpool kicks off tonight. I think it's an 8-15 start, actually, at Old Trafford, but possibly there could be some more protests outside the stadium. We'll have to wait and see, of course. We'll bring you all the fallout from that game and the Everton against Villa game on tomorrow's Football Social Daily. But for today, from myself, JP and Callum, that's it. Make sure you hit subscribe. That way you won't miss any other episodes throughout the rest of the Premier League season. And we'll catch you next time on Football Social Daily. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.